Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. We have not done a radio show in a long time, so we wanted to try to change that. And I am super excited to have two extra guests. For those that have listened for any length of time, they're going to know Dan. Dan Routh is joining us again today. And then if you listen to an episode, and I'm trying to remember the number, it's been a little while, but talking about the Veterinary Financial Advisor Network, there was another advisor that was mentioned, and his name is Ashley Foster. And I wanted to bring Ashley on and kind of have a little chat around Ashley's background, who he is, why he's passionate about serving veterinary medicine, and then also just dive into some questions and things that are top of mind. And so it'll be a little bit of a free-flowing conversation. But first and foremost, hey, guys, how are you doing? Patty, how are y'all doing? Not bad. Good to see you. Good to be back on, Isaiah. Excited for Ashley to get behind the questions here. So it's been a long time since I was there. So it'd be nice to ask somebody about themselves instead of me. I'm happy to be in the hot seat. Isaiah, thanks for having me on board. Dan, always good to see you. And I'm ready for this, man. This is exciting. Yeah. So I guess, Ashley, you came from a different background, definitely, than Dan and I did. You came a little bit up through the insurance channels, which I think would be interesting to dive in that over time. But you also are married to a veterinarian. So can you talk a little bit about the genesis of where your career has been and kind of why veterinary medicine? Obviously, it's a little bit because of your wife, but just what that's looked like and some of the things that you've seen over the course of her career and any stories that are top of mind there. Yeah. So I'll kind of give you as much of a Cliff Notes version as I possibly can. I started in the life insurance business back in 2007 which is the perfect time to get into any sort of financial services business. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew in college I wanted to be a quote-unquote financial advisor, whatever that meant. But the people that were coming on campus to recruit, the big names that everyone would be familiar, so the companies that have two last names in them, were going for people that were getting finance degrees and stuff like that. And I was basically getting a history degree. And so when I graduated, this opportunity came up to get into the life insurance business. And I said, sure, give it a shot. That's maybe the quickest way to get in. Fast forward, maybe about seven years after that, I was a partner in the Houston, Texas. That's where I'm from, from Houston, Texas, Uh, became a partner in their office, one of the youngest partners in the company and kind of hit this plateau. Like, do I really want to pursue this or what else is out there? I hooked up with a gentleman that was a mentor of mine. And now we became business partners together. And one of the things that he impressed upon me was to get my certified financial planning designation. So that was back in 2013. So I went to Rice University here in Houston, Texas, and did the whole year-long class. Both of y'all are probably familiar with the excitement of that and sitting for the very, very long tests that we had to complete. But I started learning what real financial planning was. And in the insurance world, back then especially, there was a singular focus on selling products and not really doing any planning. And so that's not what I wanted to do. So my business partner and I had some divergent ideas on what we wanted to do. He was much older than I was. He's in his 70s. And here I am, young buck in my 30s, wanting to change the world. And uh, figured that, well, this may be something that I can go ahead and do on my own. At that time, my wife, Anna, who wasn't my wife at the time, we were still dating, kind of mentioned, hey, why don't you start your own business? And hey, I've heard of this XYPN thing and serving millennials and what have you. Why don't you get involved in this? And so we put our heads together as she was going through vet school and created Next Gen Financial Planning. So just as she was finishing up fourth year is when we got the concept for creating this business. And so that's kind of how everything came together in the Cliff Notes version to put together the firm that I currently manage. Love that. You're addicted to hard entries into business with quite the eventful 2007, 2008. And then what a time to start a business is right when your significant other is coming through the hardest year of vet school. 
Oh man. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that because you're right. The fourth year as y'all know is the worst. And so she's going through the long nights through her clinics and rotations and what have you and having to deal with all that. We're also putting our heads together to create a business. God bless her. She's much stronger than I am in almost every single regard. So she kept me pretty focused on what next gen was while still focusing on finishing fourth year. So that was super impressive of her. And, and we've been able to build, I think, something really fun and exciting for the clients that we serve. Yeah. And I did a life insurance internship in college. And so I got a little bit of a taste of potentially what you went through and learned. And there's definitely the valuable side of things of just like, you know, learning how to grow a business. That's one thing that insurance companies do really well is they teach people the idea of growth. How they get there is not necessarily the best way. But I guess what was kind of that turning point 2014, 2015, when you were looking to start your practice, what specifically stood out kind of that transition? Yeah, Dan, that's a great question. I think it got to the point where I just felt schmarmy, I guess, just slanging life insurance, I guess you can say, right? I didn't feel passionate about it. I didn't see any immediate benefits to my clients. Obviously, life insurance is a valuable product. I've seen a number of death claims delivered and getting that tax-free check to family after somebody has passed away is critical. And it changes lives versus the other end of the spectrum when somebody doesn't have life insurance and a breadwinner passes away and the family is, I mean, GoFundMe pages, right? Like that's the last you want to have happen. And so there's a place for the product. But I think where I got really tired was, is that what else am I doing for people? I felt like, yeah, I was making some financial gain, right? Selling the product. The client was getting benefited from buying the product, but that was it. And at the end of the day, I may not talk to that person for another two, three years. And so I wanted to be more involved in building relationships with clients. I really enjoy that. I consider, as I'm sure y'all consider, all of your clients almost like family. And I didn't feel that way with my life insurance clients. Because once they bought the product, I mean, at the end of the day, how else could I help them? And so there was other avenues that we can do in that world to, you know, we can invest their money and all these other things, right? But there was no real planning behind it. It was, hey, do you have a IRA or old 401k? Great, let's roll that over and I'll put it into whatever portfolio, blah, 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 right? And that was it. It wasn't fulfilling to me. And so I think y'all will laugh, but I remember reading this article in Business Insider about this company that was focusing on doing financial planning for millennials, which was the XY Planning Network. And this is in 2014. I remember laughing at it and I said, how can this be profitable for the advisor? And how can this be good for the client? They don't, no one's got any money, da, 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 right? I'm thinking in the old paradigm. And fast forward another couple of years later, and I'm like, all of my friends are coming up to me asking me, hey, is this enough for a down payment on a home? How should I be doing this thing? Am I invested properly in my 401k? I just got a raise. What do I do with this? And I was just in a position where I couldn't help them, mainly because that wasn't the type of people that the industry was helping. And so I always go back to remembering that article that they put out back in 2014 going, this may be something that makes sense. And now I have a way to where I can help people like ourselves through the business model that we've created here at NextGen of being able to go ahead and really serve those clients effectively rather than letting them either A, not be served or B, be served by people that may not have their best interests at heart. Yeah, and it was interesting. So uh, chatted at the Veterinarian Financial Summit, which was with Dr. Meredith Jones, Dr. Phil Zeltzman. They put on an awesome event. Highly, highly recommend. I know it's going to happen again in 2021. Anyone that didn't attend or did attend can certainly attest to it. It's a great event. 
one of the topics that came up in one of the sessions was all around utilizing whole life insurance. And so being an ex-insurance guy, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question of thoughts then, thoughts now, and like using insurance for long-term savings versus using insurance like you talked about to cover like unexpected death, just what your thoughts are today. Yeah, Isaiah, that's a great question. And by the way, the summit my wife attended and so I got to be in on some of the sessions was excellent, man. You guys did a great job. And so looking forward to having that coming on for 2021. To go back to that question, full disclosure, I own whole life insurance. Okay. So might as well throw that out there right away. But if you think about the product itself and where the product came from, whole life insurance has been around for over a hundred years. I mean, the product itself has been around for a very long time. Term insurance really never existed until the 70s, if you think about it, right? And so if you think about the average American family back in the early 1900s, right, they had banks and things like that, but there was no other way for a family to save money other than maybe putting it at the bank. Well, here comes a life insurance company, right, that creates a product that says that we will insure you for your whole life. And we'll pay you, quote unquote, dividends on top of that and boost your savings above and beyond what you can get from the bank. And we're also very solvent. And so for the middle class families of America, this was really the primary way for them to go ahead and save money. And so the product has a very long history. And so as things have shifted, right, like today you can download an app and start saving $50 a month and put it in the stock market, right? Well, you didn't have that, obviously. 30, 40, 50 years ago. So these insurance products were very much a mainstay of a middle-class family's financial planning, right? We all remember, you know, the, I can't remember what the movie it was, but where the life insurance salesman comes in and sits down at the kitchen table and talks to the family about planning. And that's what really happened back then. And so shifting into today's environment, though, things are a little different on how that works. I think that there's a place for permanent life insurance. I've had mine since 2011. I don't plan to give it up. I plan to continue paying premium on that. I'm kind of at the point where now I'm making money on the money that I put into it, right? So there's not much benefit on giving it up. But when I counsel clients and clients come to me, the problem with the industry in general is the product can be a good product, but the system that distributes the product, the agency system, is the system where there's a lot of fault because of the incentives that are involved. We had a year... This will maybe translate into a story one day about how I met my wife. But one year where we had one of the largest life insurance sales for one of the companies that we represented and made very good money, but also the incentives. I had a all expenses paid trip to Prague. I mean, they threw a lot of money into different retirement accounts. The incentives to sell these products were huge. And so you can have somebody in a system who is very ethical. And there are a lot of ethical people in the life insurance business. But when the distribution channel is incentivizing you to sell these particular products, that's where the kind of the gray area is. So when I'm sitting here back in the day, when I was a life insurance professional, the company I represented was a captive company, meaning I could only sell their product. This is before I went with my mentor who was independent. And so we go through their training system. Hey, our whole life insurance product is the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? And we were just very educated on that not only was whole life insurance a solution, but XYZ company's whole life insurance was a solution. And we didn't know any better coming through that, right? And so you're out there and you're proselytizing, right? You're explaining the benefits and things like that. 
then the incentives or management is pressuring you to sell this product. And then their management is pressuring them to go ahead and get you to sell the product. And everyone is trying to kind of win and incentivize you. And at the end of the day, that was one of the other reasons why I left the business is because I didn't feel good about those incentives, even though I participated in those incentives. And so to flip that back around, gentlemen, and say, is it a good product? It is in the right situations. But now that there's many different ways that a young professional coming up can go ahead and begin saving, that's a product that doesn't fit for the average American, in my belief. That's more of a niche product where you may have a very wealthy individual that may have an estate tax issue, or you may have somebody that does have a lifelong need. But that's, I think, very few cases where a product like whole life insurance makes sense. And so to go back to the reason why I bought whole life insurance, well, it was because I got incentivized to buy product for myself. I earned a commission from what it is that I sold. And that helped me kind of achieve a sales club that I was trying to go for that year. If I wasn't trying to do that, I would never have bought the product. But uh, now I've had it for almost 11 years. So it just doesn't make sense to throw it out the window. Yeah, it's very similar. The whole life product and the profession is very similar to the annuity world in that when you look at the base idea of the product and what it was created for, it makes sense. And there was a period of time where the incentives attached to it, all of the different types of riders and additions to the policy that make the policy much more expensive than it should be, that all created these products that weren't worth buying and they were sold to people. And then now, especially with XY Planning Network and some of the partnerships with a lot of these either no commission or fixed fee insurance products out there, it's making the academics really come out in these products, whether it's an annuity or a whole life insurance product for estate tax purposes, obviously that niche situation, but it's actually bringing it back to be, let's focus on what it was created for, not what it was sold for. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I've seen some hanky panky kind of just in the sales business with that, right? Where I had a client that came to me and they were paying $500 a month in whole life, you know, as a 27 recently graduated veterinarian. And I said, well, how did you come about this product? Who talked to you about this? Like, how do you know, right? You're 27. Who is this talking about whole life at 27? Oh, you know, a friend of the family, what have you, sat me down, said that I need to do this. And da, da, da. I said, well, I looked at this and I said, well, how did this person convince you to spend $500 a month, right? Oh, they said it was like a Roth IRA almost. And uh, the money grows tax-free and comes out tax-free. And I said, well, let me show you why this isn't like a Roth IRA, right? And luckily, this individual had only been in there for about seven months. So at that point, it made sense to take the loss on seven months of premiums and get them on the right track to maybe contributing to the Roth IRA, right? Or some of the other goals that they had that we discussed versus putting money into a whole life insurance product. So that's where I get really upset when I see those types of situations, because I know in the back of my mind that that person should never have been a candidate to have a conversation with about whole life insurance or any permanent insurance at that level, right? And so there's a lot of wasted money out there, unfortunately, right? And so when you look at life insurance like that or whole life, you want to be sure that it's integrated into a comprehensive plan, that there's a specific reason as to why you're owning the product and putting money into that product and that it fits the financial plan and, and your goals and what it is that you want to go ahead and achieve, right? Yeah, my two cents on whole life is, and I'm probably more blunt with it, is unless you're single making half a million or you're a joint couple making more than a million, like it's rarely ever going to make sense. Yes, there's nuance to it, but I think Ashley, you did an awesome job with the history of it. That was actually interesting where I've not heard that 
description of it. So I think you get a little bit of a different take when you understand like why it was developed and it was developed for the right reasons. And then again, the channels that it's distributed with now are wrong and they've been so polluted. So yeah, to me, it's like, I've seen the same thing. I've seen people spending, you know, couples $15,000 a year in whole life insurance premiums. I'm like, you don't need to do this. There's so many other things that you have going on in life that you need to do. And it just does not make sense. So I think that's great. Rewinding a little bit, just to let people know more about you. You mentioned you were a history major. So favorite person and or a period of time that you like to read or look into? I find history fascinating. So I was just curious. Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's been a bit since I've really kind of dived into history and stuff like that, like I used to. But man, I'll tell you, World War One for me is like the human event that I love learning about. I used to read a ton of books on that. One of the things that I always wanted to be able to do when we go back to Europe and my wife's okay with doing like the old people's stuff in Europe, like the museums and stuff, right? Is going to Ypres and going to one of the battlefields and stuff like that and just seeing it. My take around that is, here in the United States, we only hear about World War II, right? Obviously, we had a very material participation in that war. But in World War I, that was the first true global war. And that was really when a lot of these like machine guns and things like that were really kind of just starting to come into their own. These weapons of war that are commonplace today that were never commonplace then. And then just how that period of time really changed the world where there was queens and kings and empires and things like that. And after World War One, the whole world just changed and how that launched then the events that took place for World War Two. So it's really cool. And especially like in England, right, or in Canada, where November, right, there were the poppy and things like that, right, you know, is there remembrance for World War One? where here we don't really have much recollection as a point of history. So do I want to live during that period? No, not really. But I'd love to study that. I think if there was a period where I can go back and live, it would probably be pre-revolutionary America or post-revolutionary, not during the revolution. But those times when the country was being formed, there was so much struggle and so much conversation and so much back and forth of how to form that more perfect union. So for me, that would be a time to, I think, would be really have uh, been interesting to be alive in. I just never remember even learning much about World War One in school. You're right. Everything was all about World War Two. All right. So let's talk about next-gen financial planning. So you launched the business. You're five, six years in now. What does next-gen financial planning look like today in terms of who you're working with? How does working with next-gen work? Yeah, no, Dan, that's a great question. And just to make a correction, we've been in business now for two years as next-gen. Two years, okay. How that first started was really just providing the level of service that somebody at a firm that says you need $500,000 in minimum assets to talk to us. And there's a lot of awesome firms like that. But for young individuals, I don't have $500,000 sitting around. I don't know a lot of people that are in their 30s or 20s that do. I think I maybe know one person, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I wanted to be able to provide a that level of detail and service and comprehensiveness to that next gen client. One of the things I think that my wife was really helpful in getting me to understand was this kind of paradigm shift versus what we as a generation and the new generation coming up, the Gen Zs, who are now graduating from college, if you want to feel old. So the shift and the mentality that we have of what our lives should look like and how finances should really kind of delve into be a part of that. We aren't going to be like our parents and be the traditional 65 and done, right? 
this whole thing about maybe taking many retirements, there's a world of possibilities out there for people. If they do some very smart planning with their money, they can really control their lives and control kind of the way that they want to go. And so I think that's kind of where we, my wife and I kind of decided that we wanted to bring next gen financial planning was to serve individuals who are not being served by the traditional firms and serve them in an untraditional way with more of a focus on living your best life and planning for living your best life and guiding you through living your best life with using money as a tool to be able to go ahead and get you there, right? Because all money is, is a piece of paper with a dead president on it. But at the end of the day, that piece of paper with a dead president on it has so many different meanings for so many different people. And the idea is, is to understand those meanings and values around that and craft the plan that speaks to those values and then guide them along that trajectory. And so we, and I say we, because Anna, my wife is a big part of this. She's not in the business, but as you may know, with the all significant others, right? It's, they always have a say and want to know how you're doing and things. So it's always a partnership in that respect. We work primarily now with veterinarian clients. I'd say maybe it's somewhere in the range of about 50 to 60% of the clients are veterinarians. The other percentage, a couple of business owners, some oil and gas, because we're in Houston, Texas, and you can't throw a rock in this town without hitting an oil and gas person in the head, right? And then a couple of attorneys as well. But I think really where a lot of them have kind of the same unique planning needs is around student debt, the veterinarians and attorneys especially. And so we, as well as I'm sure y'all really want to take a really focus on making sure that we can plan around the biggest bugaboos that a lot of these young professionals coming out of these career paths have, which is the student debt conversations and really showing them that, hey, this isn't a ball and chain on your life, right? Like there's a way to go ahead and manage this. And then once we manage all of this, then we can start building that perfect life that you envision for yourself, whether that's continuing in your profession to continue to be a veterinarian, whether it's to own your own practice, whether it's to be like my wife, who was in a small animal practice, but has decided to go a business route and now works with a group out of New York called uh, VEG, Veterinary Emergency Group, as a director of innovation. And now she uses her mind to create innovation for the company. And so that's some pretty interesting stuff that she's doing that she never imagined that she was going to do coming out of vet school. So helping those individuals realize that they can live the life that they've always wanted through financial planning. That's really what we strive for with our clients here at NextGen. I love that. And I think the returns on financial planning and advice and guidance can sometimes be lumpy, right? Like you get a huge spike initially to like get organized, get your arms around some things and have some understanding. And then it might be life's normal for a couple of years or 18 months or 36, whatever it is. And then life gets crazy again. Cause just like Anna realized, maybe this isn't what I want to do forever. Can I do something different? Can I stop doing this? Can I go do this? Can I go buy a business? Like all those questions. And I think that's the hardest thing for people to understand because the future is so uncertain. And you're right. Our generation, the folks that are here now that are younger, like our career paths, the way that we operate, the way that we work, the way that we want to live are, is very different. And it's not the same way. And I think that variability and the ability to be adaptive is super important. I think that's where planning can be massively valuable. Isaiah, I agree with you 100% on that, right? Because until we have a vision of what our future looks like, right? We're just basically just going from day to day. And so I've got a couple of veterinarian clients out of the Washington state area great people make, she's an emergency veterinarian and he's doing relief. They've got three kids and they came from a really, really difficult place. And they did a lot of work to kind of repair those areas in terms of their money. 
But when we first got together, it was, oh my Lord, they didn't know if they were doing well. They'd worked with other quote unquote financial advisors before who had told them, oh, you need to cut back on this and save this. And they were like, well, we don't want to know the things that we have to cut back on. We want to know just kind of where we're going to be able to go. And we have the certain lifestyle that we want to live and we're not prepared to give that up for certain reasons. And so no other financial advisor was willing to work with them in the capacity that they wanted to work. Their home was important to them. It was a very expensive home, but they viewed their home as the place where they could create memories with their three children. That was important. That was the most important thing to them. And so when we looked at planning for them, we took the angle of, I'm not going to tell you to sell your home or spend less on your home or what have you, right? This is, this is your value set. This is what you want to do. And so when we created the plan and presented the plan and said, guys, you guys are going to be okay. If you make a tweak here and a tweak there, we can still preserve the lifestyle that you guys want. Here's a couple of ideas you never thought about previously, which then they go, oh, we did it. And they implemented those ideas as well. And it's paid dividends. And now the conversation was a sense of relief saying here they thought they were drowning and struggling and not going to be able to have a future. And all of a sudden you can come in and create a plan and get them organized and then get them on the road to their version of financial success. And it's just that weight was completely lifted off their shoulders. And I think, again, going back to why financial planning and not staying in the life insurance business, because it was almost an immediate effect that gave me quite a high to see how excited and how relieved they were that they could do the lifestyle that they wanted that were other advisors were saying, No, you can't based on the fact that they didn't understand the values of how important their family and their home was to their family and how they wanted to make sure that they wanted to keep that as part of their planning in the near term. And so that was really cool and exciting to help those individuals, that family out in the Washington area. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. I mean, that right there is the example of what real planning life changing looks like for that couple compared to what historically has been offered as drive-by planning or drive-by recommendations. You said most people would say, you know, sell the house or you should be doing this. You should just invest. You'll be fine. While they have all these other huge emotional things they're trying to work through connected to their money. And historically, no one would ever talk to them because the advice would just be, you're in your 20s or 30s, just open a Roth IRA and stick 5,500 bucks in it. You'll be fine. Just do that for 30 years and it's good. You'll be fine. Meanwhile, the complexity of a young family is no less complex than a peak earner in their 50s or 60s who's trying to exit. It's the same thing. It's just different variables. There's all the different things we can pull and twist and fix to meet their needs. And it was just somebody needs someone to listen. But your firm, I would imagine just obviously being connected with your wife and she's in a really high growth area of vet med. What are some of the main areas that you see the next generation, you know, 20s, 30s, early 40s shifting to some of the trends, you know, because corporate is a big thing in vet med right now. Working at corporate, there's nothing wrong with that. There's obviously really great structure. If you're a young vet, you get to learn. They have all the cool technology and everything there, but also entrepreneurship is one great way for personal freedom, time freedom, as well as financial freedom. But what are some of the things you're seeing for your clients or prospects, people that you know? Yeah, I would say that a majority of them, they don't work for independent clinics. The thing that you guys I know have definitely, because I think I've listened to these on the podcast with y'all, they're talking about is a lot of this kind of corporate money that's kind of coming into the vet med industry. 
in a way, I think that's a good thing because I think it makes the business efficient. I think for a lot of veterinarians, when they get into a brand new practice and find that, you know, and they're young and these practices are owned by older veterinarians. And just imagine how I was when I came into with my old mentor, right? He's in his seventies. I'm in my early thirties and I see some of the systems and processes that he's using. And I'm sitting here going, what is this? The nineties? And so you see a lot of these younger veterinarians coming into these kind of mom and pop practices, as you would call them, that are great practices for the owner, but they could be so much more efficient and they could be so much more profitable. And I think on the corporate side, they understand the efficiencies, right? They understand they have the backing to be able to come in and turn, buy a clinic and then turn it around and then squeeze profit margin out of these clinics. I can't say for certain what type of trends are out there. I think the movement to corporate and more larger group practices are going to be a thing for the future. Just like probably in human medicine, you're starting to kind of see that initial tank to become an entrepreneur, kind of taking more of a backseat among newer residents that come out of their programs, right? It's out of residency and maybe the same thing through vet schools. I think the other thing is, is that there's a whole different world. And I think maybe one of the positives on the corporate side is that there's a whole different world of opportunities that you can look at that's just not practicing. If you take with my wife, right, where she was small animal, not for her, did not enjoy it. And then all of a sudden was presented with this opportunity to be on the business side of things. And now being a basically the director of innovation for a growing emergency veterinary practice is something that she never would have imagined herself doing coming through vet school. And so I think the interesting part about having more of the corporate roles involved in this is that that opens up the avenue to so many other opportunities for veterinarians other than just practice. And I think that's always going to be a plus when we can find different career paths for younger veterinarians to go through outside of just being the small animal vet. Yeah. And one more thing on that is I know Isaiah, we both spoken at length about practice ownership and all the benefits. And But one thing I've seen this year, and Ashley, you and I spoke about this a few weeks ago, is just the ability to earn a really good living as an ER vet or an ER vet that does a lot of their own surgery within some of these corporate or regional corporate practices. My wife's a 2019 grad, so she's pretty new out of school. So she's getting her footing in her career. But her old intern mates, her classmates, some of them were looking to potentially get into a surgical residency starting this year with this current match cycle. And with COVID, there's a number of universities who have had to either cut or significantly reduce the number of spaces they're having for resident spots, for surgery, for any specialty. And through our conversation, um, just learning that there's actually some really good avenues, whether you're a surgeon and you want to be able to cut your own stuff, but maybe you can't either, whether it's personally, financially, global pandemic, whatever reason it is, you can't go do another four years of a program making next to nothing. There's so much opportunity to be a salaried employee in a corporate setting and make well into the six figures. And it was definitely a positive, uplifting thing, especially for this year, to really learn about that as an alternative to practice ownership, either if you're not ready for it or if that's just not something you want to dive into. And I totally agree with you there. And I think that one of the things that, and Dan, you may have experienced this as well with your wife going through her veterinary education, and we may get into another fun conversation here about veterinary schools and what they should be and shouldn't be doing. But 
one of the things I think that's really important that I don't see a lot of and that I've had to help some of my clients with is negotiating a salary and really being paid when they get out of school what they're worth. And we all know these numbers. The average vet makes 80000 or 60000 or whatever a year, right? What have you. But ladies and gentlemen, the thing is, is that now with COVID, right? I remember on the news is the puppy boom and all this other stuff, right? People are getting more pets and things like that. This industry is going to grow and it's changed remarkably from what it was 20, 30 years ago. And these students that are coming through vet school, they're worth more than $80,000, I think, right? They're worth more than this. But the schools aren't teaching them how to have that conversation when they get out of school about negotiating their salaries. I've seen, and these aren't clients of mine, but these are people that I've spoken to and that my wife knows, I've seen just some horrendous employment contracts out there that people don't know what they're signing up for. One of them I saw literally handicapped a veterinarian to this practice that was run by this individual that basically kept this veterinarian there for like two to three years in this practice run by a person that was not a good person. And if she had ended up leaving, she would have ended up owing money to this person. There's a lot of people that are willing to take advantage of those veterinarians. And one of the things I think is why is because then we get into a whole nother can of worms is because individuals are coming out with two, three, four hundred thousand dollars of student debt. Hundred percent. So AVMA Economic Summit is fantastic. They just came out and said that just a touch over ninety thousand is the average, and we all know averages can be super dangerous depending on where you're at. But I mean, I've talked to a veterinarian that had been out seven or eight years, got acquired by a corporate consolidator, and was not making that and she was well worth it. And same conversation, like you need to go back and it's hard, but the whole industry with all this outside private equity money and all these different things, veterinary medicine is so valuable and so many people see it. I think the last people that see it are veterinarians. And I know it's really hard to understand, but dot-com bubble. So early 2000s, veterinary medicine strong, great financial crisis, veterinary medicine strong, COVID-19 pandemic, global pandemic, veterinary medicine strong. So it is resilient and there's a lot of people that are out there that are paying crazy amounts, especially if you are an older veterinarian or a current owner, you're probably getting a lot of offers, which is great. Like that's fantastic for those people to be able to realize the blood, sweat and tears they put into this for a long time. But if you're younger, the only way it works is with your skill set. So I would absolutely agree with Ashley. Make sure that you understand what you're worth and you don't need to be greedy. And that's not what anyone's saying. It's just make sure you're adequately compensated, make it fair for everyone involved. But I wanted to ask you, Ashley, real quick, just what you're seeing, because I know we've had the conversation on the podcast before around just different comp styles, salary, pro sal, production. Do you have a preference? Do you advise people to do one versus the other? Do you kind of go down that route? Is it going to be dependent on the person? What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. And so most of the compensation structures that I've seen have been pro sal. I did see a negative accrual out there one time, and that was kind of interesting, understanding that like, hey, if you don't hit these numbers, you owe. But the thing is, just me personally, I like the pro sal concept, right, where you have a salary and then you can make production. That just goes back to me and kind of the risk level that I'm willing to take. And so there may be some people that aren't like that. And that's okay. I know in emergency veterinary medicine, right, pro sales, I mean, that's the big thing, right, where you've got a base and you're compensated based on production. If you want to earn a higher income, you've got to take a little bit more risk in the compensation structure that you're offered. If you're just making nothing but a base salary, you've got kind of that safety net. 
and it may be a high safety net, but you're not going to earn the larger sums that somebody would be doing being on ProSell. At the end of the day, it comes down to what the individual is comfortable with. If you look at our industry, there's financial planning firms where an advisor will earn a salary and that's quite okay. And there's other places where if you're like myself and a business owner, there is no salary, right? There's different strokes for different folks and how they're compensated. At the end of the day, I think when you're presented with a compensation structure that you make sure that it's something that you are comfortable with. But I see the trend and seeing what my clients are earning and how they're being compensated, seeing the classmates from Texas A&M University where my wife went to school. And I see a lot of pro-sal type compensation. So I don't know if that's a trend in the industry or not or what have you, but I just see that more and more people are getting that type of compensation. Absolutely. Any last topics, Ashley, that we maybe haven't covered that you want to share a soapbox topic we haven't touched on before we just kind of do random questions or thoughts? I think at the end of the day, this being a financial success podcast, and this is to the listeners, your version of financial success may be completely different than my version, than my wife's version, than anyone else's version of what financial success is. And I think the problem is, the challenge is, I don't want to say problem, but I think the challenge is being able to really get in touch with what that really means for you. And this goes to more of the abstract of financial planning, right? Not just the math and the numbers, but really the values. What's important to you? I saw this with my wife when she graduated from vet school. She wanted to go one direction and that wasn't available to her and she went another direction. And then now she's in another direction right? And she really loves the direction that she's going in. And so really have an understanding of your value system, what you want this to be in terms of your success, what that looks like financially for you, not only that, but also personally. When your career is not going to be the same, you may not be with the same company for a very long time, right? You may be at a different practice or practicing different things or on the business side. I think the great thing about the industry now is that there's so much a veterinarian can do, but it really comes down to really understanding what your values are and defining success. And then always remembering that your version of financial success, you shouldn't look on Instagram or some of these other social media areas and define your success based on what you see there. Success and financial success is personal and really getting in touch with those values early on and understanding what you want out of your career and your life will really pay dividends. And I think that's where Isaiah, Dan, myself can really come in and really provide assistance on is defining that for you and guiding you along that track to help you realize the value set that you want to live by making the kind of income that you want to make. 100%. My last question is, Ashley, any questions for Dan and I? Things that you'd just be curious to hear our opinion that you want to fire back? Yeah, no, that's great. Dan, I'll throw it to you, my friend. How did you survive being a non-veterinarian going with a wife, maybe girlfriend back then, fiance, who's going through vet school? Because that was challenging for me, man. Yeah, so we were unmarried for the first semester of first year. We got married Christmas Eve, so five years coming up here in two weeks. Congratulations. Got married Christmas Eve, and then we were married the following you know, three and a half years of vet school. So it was hard. There's no other way to put it than it is hard. Vet students are extremely busy. If you find yourself at vet school, you have a hardworking, curious personality. It would be very hard to get there without that. And I think I learned just how hardworking and curious my wife was when it came to vet med. And that just with her and her classmates and group studies and what they work on, 
is they love it. They are passionate about what they do, continues after vet school, but they love talking cases. They love trying to learn why a case didn't go a certain way, why it did go that way, how they can do it better next time. And it helped me in my career growth and just pathway because I was studying for my CFP exam that first year she was in vet school as well. And so with her studying, with me studying, we had a one and a half year old dog, German short hair pointer. If anybody knows them, they're super high energy. And just our whole household got really efficient, really driven, really goals based. And I think we took a serious step while we were in vet school. And then that's a common thing that I've seen with other friends who were either married or dating, or even personally, just from start of vet school to the end of vet school, just maturity, drive, what you want in life. People tend to either, they might not know exactly what they want, but they know what they don't want. And that whole transition for those four years is huge growth for students. Yeah, I'm totally with you. So I appreciate you sharing that, Dan. And Isaiah, my question to you, I remember my wife telling me about your podcast when you first started this thing. And it's come a long way. And I think that has a lot to do with the professionalism and the attention that you put into your shows. I guess my question would be, from the time that you started this to now, what do you think you've learned that has kind of changed your perception of working with veterinarians or the industry in general that you may not have known when you first started this? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I've told the story before, but like the whole reason I started it is just because I couldn't find another channel to like listen. So I just felt like, shoot, if I can have a podcast, ask people to come on and share their stories, I can record it and share with others. And I've learned a ton. So yeah, it's been a huge source of learning for me. And it's been fun to share it and have people listen to it. So that's been awesome. But I think the biggest thing that I've learned is there's so many different ways that you can take the skill set that you learn going through veterinary school and do whatever you want with it. Like there are so many veterinarians that, hey, I'm going to work in a clinic, but own a business. And it's more that traditional route. But there are so many other different ways that you can go and utilize the skill set that you've learned, like the problem solving, how to critically think, all these other things that apply. I mean, your wife, Ashley, is a great example of that, of taking it into the business world. And I think that veterinarians, again, and I say this over and over, undervalue their skill set. And that's not necessarily just being a clinical veterinarian, but just like how valuable the education and the way that you can learn and apply what you've garnered from school into all kinds of careers. But I think, and I would agree, so the CEO of JAB Holdings, and I've shared this a couple different times, has talked about how veterinary medicine is moving into this like golden age, and it's the first 10 years of this 50-year super cycle. Totally agree. It is an awesome place to be. Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are issues. That is totally true. But my thing that makes me sad is when I hear people talk at different conferences or different things and say, well, I wouldn't recommend someone that I love or know in coming into veterinary medicine. And I think that Again, I'm happy that they feel comfortable sharing that. And that is their opinion. They're allowed to say that. But I think you'd be hard pressed to find another industry that gives you as many options as veterinary medicine can. And is something that is so needed to where you can do a lot of different things and having great income. Yes, the student loan issue is there, but we can solve that. And I'm not just saying the people here, but I'm saying like the industry as a whole can solve that and figure out ways to make themselves better. And I think there's a lot of work going in there. So I think the biggest thing I learned is there's just so much variability between what people can do. And it's not a, hey, this is kind of the career path that you were on, which maybe naively I thought that initially. I think what you say there is awesome. And looking at my wife, I think her class was like close to maybe two, 300-ish. They had a Texas A&M, you could take a quote unquote alternative track, which is more of a business track. So she actually did some internships with 
Trupanian learning about pet insurance with Banfield in the corporate office, which is actually a fun place to go visit, actually. But she and another person took this alternative track. And I really wish schools would not only just teach the theory behind vet medicine, but also the business of vet medicine. And I think that when you have a trained and educated veterinary force that knows it, there's multiple ways to make an impact in this industry. Just like you said, the golden age of this industry, I totally agree with you now that I'm seeing my wife on a completely different side of things, you know, and what she's working on, that there's ways to go ahead and there's many different paths. And unfortunately, I think a lot of students only see or only taught through their schools that there may be one or two paths when there's so many different things available to them. So I think you're absolutely right, man. I totally agree with that. And real quick, just to shout out and encourage people that are listening that maybe still are in school that are thinking, yeah, I wish I had an alternative track where I'm at. Robert Trimble and VEA, what they're doing is fantastic. So Veterinary Entrepreneurship Academy, that is an awesome, awesome, awesome opportunity for those that are still in vet school to learn and see other sides of the industry. He's been a guest on the show. I'm not recalling the show number off the top of my head, but you can find it. It's a great conversation and I'd highly encourage people to look at that and push your universities if they're not helping support that. Because I do know some people are having to pay out of pocket. Some universities are comping that. It's a fantastic experience. I think it will greatly benefit your career. So look into that. Outside of that, I feel like we could probably talk another three hours, but I know we're over time already. (laughs) We're going to do this again. So if you don't like the episode, let me know. But I'm pretty sure most people will find a lot of good things out of this. Ashley, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. So much good thought that I've had just listening to you like, oh, wow, that's a really good idea. Or that's really well put as far as like your thought process going through things. So I appreciate that. I think it helps people understand like, what does financial planning look like? And I think you articulate that well. So thank you so much for spending time. And Dan, obviously, it's great to have you on again and certainly appreciate your questions. Awesome. Yeah, thank, and, you. thank you, gentlemen. It was, this has been fun. This has been great. And hopefully I'd look forward to doing this again with you all. This has been a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to today's show. All comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is the founder of ID Financial Planning and Wealth Management. Isaiah is a registered investment advisor in the state of Indiana. Dan Routh is employed by Old Peak Finance and is a registered investment advisor in the state of North Carolina. The biggest compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend. Reviews help the show get found and Apple Podcast is predominantly the platform that is how people listen to the show. If you have three minutes, love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us an honest rating and review. That will help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information and insights and have the ability for your voice to be heard, join the private Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll to the bottom section where it says about your host and click on the Facebook icon. Then I can let you join the group and would love to hear from you there. Thanks for listening and I'll be talking again to you soon.